And welcome everybody to our Peace Alliance Department of Peacebuilding Campaign monthly call on third Wednesdays. And tonight we have a, a wonderful guest, Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern, and we still got people joining the call. We thought we usually do brief check-ins. So I just thought we'd just go around and I'll call a name and everybody just say one to three words about um, where you are tonight, just to, to speak your name into the room and then we'll do a connection exercising. And uh, Nancy should have joined us from now. She's on the road, but she's on her way to the phone, <laughs> to the Zoom room, and she'll get on just in time to do an update on the campaign. Uh, Laura. Hi, everybody. I'm Laura. I live in Northwestern Pennsylvania in a national forest. And um, I'm doing great. And Dr. Dufferin, I wanted to say hello and welcome. And that I found some of your philosophy club uh, conversations and have thoroughly enjoyed them. So thank oh, you. Great. Thanks. Kendra. I'm eager. Yay. From Florida. <laughs> Lori. Hi. Um, I'm from DC. I've just been so looking forward to uh, hearing you speak. So I'm moved by everything I've read so far. So so welcome. Yeah. Amina. Amina, say hello. Yes. Hi. Um, hi, everyone. Um, good to be here. Uh, Amina from um, San Francisco Bay Area. Good to see you all. Geraldine. Hi, uh, Geraldine Stapleton, located in Hollywood, California. Uh, been with this since 2005 and still mm -hmm. going. So, till hopefully uh, we'll see it uh, materialize, it being the uh, creation of a U.S. Uh -huh. Department of Peace Building. And uh, welcome to Thomas. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jana. Hi, I'm in New York City. Happy to be here. Thank you. Great. Great. Elva? Yeah. Elva uh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said Elva. Did you say I Elva? I did. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm in Arlington, Texas, which is right between Dallas and Fort Worth. It's where the Dallas Cowboys play here in Arlington. <laughs> All right. I think that's Beth on the phone. We're being very... Yeah. Because we've got a speaker tonight, we want to get to as soon as possible. Uh, Beth Blick from North uh, St. Paul. Good, glad you joined us, Kathy. Yeah, thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Kathy. I am from Houston, Texas, and I'm curious. I'm looking forward to tonight. Great, uh, Cecilia. Hello, I'm here from South Florida. Just got home from work. Happy to be here. A little tired, but grateful to be here yeah, with you. Thank you. you. Great. Uh, Bren, would you like to say hello? Hi. Hello from Northeastern Kentucky. Uh, it's good to see you all and looking forward to oh, this lovely. evening. Okay. Linda? Days, would you like to say hello? That's all right. You don't have to. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Hi, I'm Linda Hayes, and I'm from Riverton, New Jersey. Hi, everybody. Mm. 
Hello. Hi. All right. We'll go into connection. Um, do we have a volunteer to lead us in connection tonight? Kendra. Okay, Kendra. Let's close our eyes, sit up straight, put our head back for our shoulders, mm -hmm. and deep breathe, deep breaths. Spirit guides and our ancestors and our descendants and all of the nature spirits, all of the wisdom people to help us understand peace and build peace. That's it for the, this, this short connection exercise. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Okay. All right. Welcome to the people who came on as we were transitioning to connection. Uh, Nancy, do you want to do a brief campaign update before we hear from our speaker? Yes, I'll, I'll keep it really brief. It's nice to see everybody. Um, we're in the middle of season for nonviolence right now. So part of what we do for that is um, schedule congressional meetings. Um, all of them are by Zoom. Um, maybe a couple of hybrid ones. If Lori decides to go, she's she's our Washington, D.C. person. Um, so right now, so far, we've scheduled 12 meetings coming up in the next couple of weeks and uh, we have uh, quite a few more in the works and um karen i think you're continuing to write to biden every week or so um as i've gone to monthly but yes i'm writing him <laughs> okay Re reminding him about the necessity of peace and um yeah, so we're doing a lot of, of other things too but those are our main um, advocacy actions Great, great. And for those who joined, you know, other than uh, on the hour when we talked, uh, our speaker is going to go for um, 48 minutes <laughs> and uh, we'll have some Q&A. Amina will be introducing him now. And so just wanted to give people a heads up if they can stay on a little bit late. We may talk a little bit more and see how how long our speaker can stay. It's two o'clock in the morning, his time. So we're very <laughs> grateful that he's he's put us into his schedule at this hour from France. And Amina, please. Yes, thank you, Karen. Um, so as Karen mentioned, uh, our distinguished guest today is Dr. Thomas Daffern, um, who is a multifaceted scholar um, with expertise in philosophy, history, academia, poetry, teaching, and religious studies. His PhD from University of London focused on the history of quest for world peace leading to the establishment of the innovative field of transpersonal history. As a director of the International Institute of Peace Studies and Global Philosophy, he also coordinates the Commonwealth Interfaith Network with a rich teaching background at prestigious institutions like the University of London, University of Oxford, 
in the Muslim College in London, he has contributed significantly to peace education. Dr. Daffron has um, chaired numerous meetings in the UK House of Lords on peace and global ethics, advocating for a ministry of peace in the UK. He initiated the Leonardo da Vinci Peace Prize and actively promotes, promotes peaceful resolutions to conflicts, uh, particularly in the Middle East, where he coordinates the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and actively advocates for rational, comprehensive, and peaceful solutions to conflicts in Israel-Palestine and other Middle Eastern conflicts. With over 60 published books, he remains a prolific figure in global intellectual and peace initiatives. With that, Dr. Daffern, welcome to our February uh, campaign call and our 2024 season of non-violence non speaker series. Um, as Karen also mentioned, I know it's 2 a.m. your time in France, and so I can't express how much we appreciate you being with us, joining us and sharing your wisdom with us. It truly is an honor to have you with us this evening. Um, and without further ado, uh, the mic is all yours. Well, <clears throat> okay, thank you so much for your kind introductions. And it's lovely to meet you all. Um, you're a nice and interesting bunch of committed peace activists, I can tell that. So, you know, thanks for being here. Um, it's an honor for me as well to meet you all. Um, I call this talk Building Bridges to Peace, the transformative power of government policies of peace building. So what do I mean by that? What's the title? Um, <clears throat> I think governments have a role to play in peace building. A lot of peace building is done by, you know, we the people, um, and it's a, uh, you know, sort of personal commitment. Um, but I think governments have also a duty. Governments take it upon themselves to, to be very concerned about defence, they spend millions of dollars and pounds on defence. They think it's their duty. Fine. I argue that it's also their duty to start thinking about peace, actually investing in it. And that's where a Department of Peace Building comes in. That's why the work you're proposing is so important. And it sort of dovetails with what I've been campaigning for in Britain and, and Europe. <clears throat> um. So that's what this is about. And building bridges, well, it's a symbolic thing, isn't it? In ancient Rome, the priests were called pontiffs, which meant bridge builders. In the European Union, our euros have bridges on the notes of the money because the bridge is a sort of common theme across European cultures and civilizations. And so it's a symbolic thing. If we could, if we could invest in building bridges instead of bombing them, blowing them up we it'd be a much more peaceful world wouldn't it so so that's why i think it's an important motif <clears throat> okay um a bit of introductory stuff i've got a few this is divided into 12 sections this talk so um <clears throat> i i founded this international institute of peace studies and global philosophy at the university of london back in 1991 when i was working there um on a feasibility study into creating a, a, a national centre for peace studies in London. It's a major city. It's the biggest university in, in the English-speaking world. And, um, you know, I thought it was very important. So I, I decided strategically, I discovered the University of London was created by Act of Parliament. It was such a big thing that 
Parliament had to legislate. So he said, OK, if we want a Peace Studies Institute here in London, we should go to Parliament. They should legislate. So I organised 30 meetings in the House of Lords in the 90s and 2000s, um, hoping for several things. Firstly, that we'd get an all-party group for peace and conflict resolution going with MPs and Lords from all different political parties. We have a system in the UK Parliament, so they can set up these special interest lobby groups um, and have meetings. Um, I was able to hold these meetings in Parliament because any Lord or MP can convene a meeting and invite people. You're a guest. It doesn't cost anyone. So it's, it was a great meeting venue. Um, I don't know if you can do that in, in Congress, but you ought to be meeting in Congress, in my view. And, and you know, at least a couple of times a year. Um, and I also, you know, felt that to get peace really on the on the British political scene, we should have a UK peace department or ministry. Um, <clears throat> and that was the other reason for doing these 30 meetings in Parliament. Um, at the same time, I was active. Uh, in fact, even before that, I was active as a peace activist but as an intellectual, so I, I founded Philosophers and Historians for Peace. This was the time in, in you know, the 80s when people were campaigning against the nuclear, um, threat of nuclear war. And I was saying, well, shouldn't we sort of think this through as philosophers? Shouldn't we try and deconstruct what led us to this um, precipice of Armageddon? And, um, okay, so... <clears throat> Moving on, a little bit more of my background. I was actually born in Canada, in Montreal. Um, and and the first few years, earliest memories are of North America. But we moved as a family back to the UK. My parents are British. But I, I've once I started getting active in peace work and educational work, I travelled a lot. I've been to 35 countries around the world, visiting and teaching and, and, and learning. And I travel around the USA um, on a peace um, sort of study program, really. I visited most of the peace research institutes at Harvard and Berkeley and uh, all stations between. And I spoke twice at the UN headquarters in New York um, about the role of universities in developing peace, because obviously as an academic, I feel strongly that universities can and should do more to promote peace studies and just peace thinking. I also trained as a mediator in San Francisco during, during that visit. Um, and all this time I was doing research for my own PhD uh, as, as well as teaching at London University and then um, Oxford. And, you know, my PhD grew out of my activism and, and influenced it. And then it was the theory behind it. So I, I ended up working on the history of the search for peace in the post-World War II era from 1945. Eventually, 2001 was the cutoff time frame. Um, and so I was looking at different sectors of, of, of research. So psychologists, historians, philosophers, uh, religious thinkers, you know, um, and psychologists looking for what they had found out about peace. I regard these as the frontiersmen um, trying to find out what, what peace is, where it comes from. There's internal peace that psychologists can help us understand. There's, there's 
political scientists can help, economists can help, uh, religious thinkers can talk about spiritual peace and so on and so on. So I was looking at the whole lot, trying to get an overview map of what peace is and what we found out about it since World War II. Uh, I, obviously, I was in, involved in speaking at the UN because that was the body set up after World War II to prevent World War III, which would be so catastrophic, none of us would be here to 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 tell the tale. Um, and it's still an unknown. You know, what I discovered in, in my research was that we still haven't discovered the, the secrets of peace, but we are close to it, you know. Um, at the same time, I founded a thing called the Multi-Faith and Multicultural Mediation Service in 95, having trained as a mediator, because I felt a lot of the conflicts now have an ethnic and religious component, and nobody was really addressing this. The UN system doesn't, didn't then, and still doesn't actually really address this. Just to give you one example, we've just had a horrible conflict going on in the Caucasus in 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 Azerbaijan, which is a largely Muslim country. Um, and there's a small pocket of Armenians um, who who are who are largely Christian living inside Azerbaijan. And um, you know, for all kinds of complex reasons to do with the former USSR. This strange anomaly was happening. You have this this enclave of Christians inside a largely Muslim country. Now that's the sort of dispute that that there should be a mechanism, a framework to deal with, but the UN doesn't have it. Instead, it has this thing that oh well, what a country does in its own state is totally up to it. You know, national sovereignty. So Azerbaijan invaded this little enclave with massive forces, killed. A whole bunch and then they all fled down a road into armenia for their lives leaving their homes their their lives um and the international community did zero did nothing the un did nothing so that's the kind of conflict i was saying look guys we've got to have a mechanism a framework to deal with this stuff at the very least we could have mediation surely between azerbaijani muslims and Armenian Christians, you know, it's the very least we should do. Who's doing it? Well, actually, nobody. This is shocking, you know, and this is why we need something like a Department of Peace building in the US, because that body would be doing it, you see. Um, anyway, I I set out, you know, to, I set out my own service, multi-faith mediation service, which has dealt with conflicts, but um, of that sort, but um, it doesn't have enough funding and enough clout and enough, you know, uh, personnel to effectively deal with it. And there's too many conflicts breaking out. It broke out in the Balkans and then the Middle East and and the Caucasus and you name it. So <clears throat> anyway, I, I did a lot of the theory for it. I then moved to Wales, actually, out of London. I was teaching at Oxford. I moved seem to keep moving west. I moved to Wales and I decided to go and teach in schools. Uh, I think there's a few educators on this call and certainly in the peace building, you know, um, alliance, you've got teachers and stuff. So I, I'm a great passionate believer in children of the future of humanity. We need to talk sense to children. And I, I had great fun as a head of religious studies and philosophy in schools for 10 years. 
in Wales and elsewhere in the UK. But I was I kept busy running my peace studies institute, and I I got involved in peacemaking between Britain and Ireland because I'm part Irish, um, living in Wales, very Celtic sort of you know country with fascinating history. And I set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Britain and Ireland. When I was starting out on all this work, the IRA was still bombing London and blowing it up now and then. And the British Army was still like shooting Catholics in in Belfast. And so fortunately that stopped because of the Good Friday Agreement, which I played a little role in behind the scenes. Um, I also discovered um, some interesting characters called Druids in the Celtic world. Some of you may have heard of Druids. Um, I thought they were just in books, but I discovered they're still around and uh, met, met some of them in Ireland and Wales and was initiated into the Druid Council of Britain and elected their peace officer. I discovered that the Druids were sworn to peacemaking in the classical Celtic world. They were, they were the ones that directed the warriors, but they, they were not, they were, they were sworn to nonviolence and they tried to resolve conflicts using their spiritual intelligence, shall we say. The Druid culture is like the indigenous tradition of, of, of Northwestern Europe and Britain and Ireland. And it was absolutely fascinating. So I wrote a whole encyclopedia of Druid studies and, and you know, it's, it's a long suppressed thing because the dominant culture of Britain, the, the kind of Westminster elite, actually actively tried to suppress knowledge about the Druids, just as you know, the Native American Indian peacemakers like Deganawida, knowledge of them has been suppressed in the American educational curriculum. Um, he was a great, you know, peacemaker. But anyway, so I also developed this periodic table for the world's religious and philosophical traditions whilst teaching, which is a map for all the faiths and how they all interlink um, so that, you know, peacemakers have something to to like understand how these things all fit together. Um, so later I moved to to Scotland. The, the gods gave me a castle in Scotland, like in uh, Harry Potter. It was, it was like the Hogwarts castle on a loch. I, I kid you not. <laughs> and um, I was very happily living there. It was right next to where the British nuclear weapons program is, the Trident submarines. I could see from my castle battlements the Trident submarines going up and down the loch, which was a very kind of archetypal thing because I was having seminars in the castle using it as an educational centre on how can we rethink the need to have nuclear weapons in today's world um, and did a lot of interfaith peace research and set up an, a, a peace policy centre there, a peace research um, policy centre because... You know, it occurred to me, we don't have anywhere in academia or advocacy groups, we, we don't even talk about the idea of peace policy. We have foreign policy, security policy, defence policy, economic policy, et cetera, et cetera. And we have huge think tanks behind all these things. We don't have one single peace policy centre. Uh, so how are we going to get peace if we don't have a peace policy centre? <laughs> It's like America won the, you know, invaded Iraq, conquered the Iraqis, um, but they didn't know what to do afterwards because they had no peace policy. I'm saying we should have a peace policy before 
military action. Um, and and again, that's the sort of thing that the um, uh, you know Department of Peacebuilding would be doing. It would be thinking through, joining up the dots. What would be say America's peace policy towards country X or towards conflict Y? Um, so that was that was that phase. And then in 2017, I moved to France. I was absolutely appalled at the concept of Brexit, which was this stupid idea dreamed up by right-wing British xenophobes. Um, I later discovered it was funded, this movement, by Putin. Unbelievable skullduggery was going on. The Russian intelligence community, I've given it previously talks about this, hacked into the British um, sort of right-wing you know, and and weaponize them to become anti-European. We've been friends of Europe for 50 years. We were embedded into the EU happily. We had the best of both worlds. We had a Commonwealth um, and we had um, good transatlantic relations with America. We had brilliant relations with Europe. And suddenly, at the behest of Putin, we were taken out and the Tory party became his his plaything uh, in the hands of Boris Johnson. So I, I I do know what I'm talking about, trust me, and read Tim Snyder's books on this. Um, but it's kind of, you know, uh, shocking, really. So anyway, I moved to France. I thought, to hell with that. I speak French. Um, I'm a Europhile. And I live now in the middle of France very happily. And that's when I had this interesting experience, which I want to talk about. Um, when I when I organised a, a academic seminar here, I run a kind of centre here now. It's moved from the castle in Scotland to France, and I organised a day in honour of Leonardo da Vinci. He's always been one of my heroes. He's a polymath, a Renaissance man, painter, but also an architect, a designer of technology. He was inventing stuff, um, you know, way ahead of the game. Um, and so I, I organized a seminar and then we drove to his graveside in Amboise Castle. If you ever get a chance to come to France and visit, you know, go. Um, and I can only, and, and then a strange experience happened. I came back home and I was watching the sunset and I had, I can only call it a download. Uh, it's my language for a sort of insight revelatory moment. Um, when I felt that Leonardo was, was, he said to me, you know, Thomas, I've got to tell you something urgent. <laughs> um, I, and I have to say, I don't normally do this kind of thing. I'm not one of those channeler types. Um, but it was a very strong impression. And because so I had done an awful lot of research. I gave a talk about Leonardo that day earlier. So, And then we went to the graveside. And so he was on my mind a lot. Basically, he said, and I knew this from my research, he had to spend quite a lot of his life designing weapons. Using his brilliant mind, he designed machine guns, tanks, underwater submarines. I mean, he saw the future of warfare and designed the technology for it. Um, he had to do this to make a living because you couldn't, there were only so many beautiful women you could paint in, in Renaissance Italy. It was it was the blokes with the money that wanted weapons because they were always fighting each other. And Leonardo said to me, said, look, Thomas, that's I, I confess I, I had to design weapons. And I'm so upset that the young minds of today are having to do the same. The new Leonardos who could be there, the geniuses coming out of Harvard or 
Berkeley or whatever, they're having to go off and work for the, the Pentagon and design weapons just to kind of earn earn enough, um, you know, um, to sort of pay the bills. Wouldn't it be lovely, he said, if if those minds could be working on peace technologies, on developing the infrastructure for peace, because that's what's needed in this world, just as it was in my day. So I was, you know, I was thinking about this, and I got in a flash, um, it's a sort of series of thoughts that, <clears throat> A, we could set up um, a Leonardo da Vinci Peace Prize to honour him, because he was deep down a, a peace lover. He wanted beauty in the world, not war and death and violence and ugliness. Um, you know, anybody that paints the Mona Lisa and, and so on um, is, is a lover of beauty. So so we, can, we, we ought to give a Leonardo da Vinci peace prize, and there isn't one. Um, and then what would it be for? Well, I had this idea, uh, I can only call it a download, um, <clears throat> that we ought to give it to somebody that can design a nonagon, a nine-sided building, to sit on top of the Pentagon, which is a five-sided building, which, which is housing the Ministry of Defense for the US. The nonagon would house the Department of Peace, or Peace Building. And you see, the Pentagon isn't very high. When it was built under Roosevelt's directions back in the 40s, it's it's not that you know not that tall you could build a building exactly the same height on top you could have it a nine-sided building and it, my vision of it is that it would be mainly made of glass it would be a work of beautiful architecture you know that, that would make Leonardo proud um, nowadays with modern materials and stuff it wouldn't have to be an ugly concrete type thing it would be a beautiful building open plan offices, um, lots of lots of plants, you know, um, and all the infrastructure that would be needed to house a Department of Peace or peace building, doing as much and as complicated as work as the Ministry of Defence down below in the Pentagon. So the, the Peace Prize, the Leonardo da Vinci Peace Prize, I talked it over with colleagues and this, this plan sort of emerged, would, would go to the architectural firm that designed the Nonagon. You know, there'd be a contest and architects all over the world would compete. The one that won it would get half the prize. The other half of the prize would go to the lobbying firm or agency that gets it through Congress and manages to get enough senators to sign a bill that, yes, we're going to bring a Nonagon into being. Um <clears throat> And it would have to be, you know, obviously approved and sort of uh, get enough politicians to get on board with the idea. Now, my idea is that this would be a gift from the French government to the people of America, just as the Statue of Liberty was. Back in uh, 1886, a French architect called Bartholdi, who, by the way, was a, was very interested in Druids. He did a big sculpture of Vercingetorix, the great Druid leader of Gaul, uh, which is in, um, you know. Um, so this this um, this would be a present from the French government and the French people, actually, uh, as a gift to the Americans because we love America. 
But what we want is America to stand for peace, just as in last century we wanted America to stand for a haven of freedom for the refugees fleeing from Europe in the 19th century. So now what we want is America to stand stand up for peace. Okay. Um, and I, I believe that that would be feasible um, to, to get. I'm sure Macron or whoever's a president would, would jump at that as a project. So why a nonagon? Yes, that's the term, a nonagon. It's like a pentagon, but it's five-sided. That's the technical name in geometry for a nine-sided figure. Okay. And why stick it there on the pentagon? Okay. Well, this is this is a visibly provocative site to put it it's it's the peace community saying look guys you've had your pentagon for 50 years and more thanks thanks a lot for that you've spent trillions of dollars of american taxpayers money um i'm not sure that the world is much safer as a result of all that so so we're going to stick a peace uh, building on top which is going to do the peacemaking work peace building work that we also now need. So it will be America signaling to the world, um, actually, we're not a warlike, militaristic, bloody nation that just knows how to bomb people. You know, I know Americans. I know you're much better than that. You're much more brilliant and creative. And, you know, there's more geniuses in America than probably every other country in the world. Um, it can't be beyond you to see that peace is going to be much a better gift to the world than just endless bombings. Um, you know, the, the, the trillions of dollars spent in invading Afghanistan, conquering it, blah, blah, blah. It hasn't brought peace at all. It just brought the Taliban back um, with, you know. So, <clears throat> so that's, that's why a nonagon... Um, you see, in all truly sophisticated cultures, it's realized that peace is preferable to war. Or something, yes, sometimes you have to do. You need an army, et cetera, et cetera. But a civilized culture values peace because peace is what creates the arts, what creates culture, what creates education, what creates science. And, you know, I believe America is a sophisticated culture that knows that deep down. I mean, you're the witness to that you people listening to me, and the hundreds and thousands like you. Um, it's you who would build this nonagon. Okay, so, and then when I discovered Amina, we met at a conference recently, um, I don't know, a few months ago, and, and I was very impressed by her, and, and she liked my talk, which was about matters related to peace. And so and I, I discovered that you guys are campaigning for the same thing, although you hadn't thought of putting it on top of the Pentagon. That's my kind of, that's my gift to you. Um, you see, I think that <clears throat> it would be an ideal location because we've got to capture the imagination of the American people. And the Nonagon idea would do so. It's so outrageous that, that it would just like, you know, people would realize, wow, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> people like Marion Williamson who helped set up the uh, peace building thing she she would see its potential immediately I'm sure um, and I think that the great you know the great and the good of of America would would rally to this concept in a way that it hasn't attracted them before because the idea of a department of peace building has been there as a sort of minority thing in Congress ever since Dennis Kucinich proposed it 
but it's not caught fire in the in the public imagination. I think the nonagon would 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 enable it to catch fire, and I think that's really needed. This is an emergency project for an emergency time because the world's on fire. All I'm suggesting is we build a fire station capable of dealing with it. Um, okay, so now I want to come to sort of the heart of my talk, really. Um, what would it do? I mean, I know you guys have thought this through and you've you've written about it, and but sh let me share what I think it might be doing. Um, firstly, it will be doing conflict prevention. The, the point of a peace-building department is it stops the conflicts in the first place happening because it's so much more expensive to then have to go in and sort out the mess later. So it's constantly monitoring conflicts around the world and trying to prevent them flaring up into actual you know, war. Um, it'd be doing conflict prevention. It'd be doing mediation because when there is conflict, you can at least bring the parties together and you could invite them to the to the nonagon for a, for a mediation talks, you know, um, or or some other um, appropriate location. And and it will be doing peace building. This is this. It's about long term cultural investment in in countries and and helping the locals, the people that live there, to to resolve their own differences um, through peace building. Um, it would be doing conflict resolution. So, okay, so a conflict's broken out. Then you can send in a team from the nonagon of experts who would resolve the conflict. Um, <clears throat> they would have... Okay, so because it would have a budget as big as the Pentagon, I don't know if I mentioned that, it would have an equal budget to the Pentagon. Um, it would have funds to say to warring parties, look, stop fighting Russia and Ukraine. This is just ridiculous. We want to invest, um, you know, in, in some peace work for you guys, and we'll give you whatever, you know, the, the cost of just a few of these missiles they're throwing about. We're throwing billions at weapons, but it's not building peace. Whereas if the Department of Peace Building was, was able to fund peace building between warring countries, it would it would solve these problems, I believe. And, you know, Israel and Gaza is another point in example it would do restorative justice programs um, because that's part of peace building people feel a sense of grievance they have historic oh they tortured me they attacked me you know they're all devils well they both think that about each other <clears throat> in the Israel Hamas war for instance and there's some really deep restorative justice work needed another way of talking about that is therapeutic jurisprudence so you don't you don't do law to penalize people you do it to heal the relationships like a medical type thing um obviously it would help with disarmament programs which have stalled because the state of the world is not emphasizing peace anymore we need to get back on track with disarmament um it would do peace development so that it's investing in what we call development, you know, giving third world countries extra um, funding and aid, I think it should be provision. It should be conditional on their developing peace programs, so that we we are giving aid to countries like the Sudan to stop their civil wars, um, or or <clears throat> you know, other, there are many other examples. So develop 
should have a peace orientation, and that would be part of peace development. It would be promoting peaceful diplomacy. <coughs> you know, diplomacy, which is a French kind of invention, vive la France, we, we're not doing very well on diplomacy anymore. Um, <coughs> people are, people have forgotten that, that, gosh, civilization requires, um, you know, diplomatic uh, moves. It could be doing cultural sensitivity training and interfaith training so that when, you know, when ambassadors from the Nonagon go and visit Country X, they know the language, they understand the rituals, the, the habits, the, the sensitivities, um, and are not going to... I mean, gosh, you, you know this, but when American troops invaded Iraq, they were so unbelievably culturally insensitive to the to the kind of Islamic culture of Iraq, which was very very sophisticated and ancient culture, <clears throat> um, you know that's not how to deal with 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 other cultures. A nonagon could have resolved these problems much better. Um, it would deal with the psychology of peace building, dealing with fear and trauma, as my. PhD uncovered, you know, a lot of violence is, is caused by psychological trauma, revenge thoughts, and a lot of this is where terrorism comes from. People are so up against the wall that they have nothing else. I mean, can you imagine killing yourself with a bomb to make a sort of political point? I mean, the horror of that is unthinkable. That's a psychological problem we have to unpick. And so, um, so there'd be a psychology track to the work of the nonagon to help people heal from these traumas. Um, and, and so it would have a, a, a terrorism prevention program through education and through, through psychological counseling, help, all that kind of stuff. Instead of sticking hoods over people and putting them in, in um, you know, waterboarding them, which is what um, the Bush lot did, it would choose, it would actually just try and say, look, speak soul to soul and say, look, this terrorism thing isn't really a good idea, is it? It's it's um I've coined a word actually as a philosopher, which is joyism. That's my antidote to terrorism, which is we use joyful means to achieve joyful results, not terror means to achieve peace. So joyism um, you know, is the replacement. It would also look at industrial peacemaking, um, you know. The old class struggle, workers versus bosses and strikes that turn bloody and all that stuff. That's still happening in some parts of the world. So the, the nonicon could help that uh, move to, um, you know, sensible. My father was a pioneer of management science, so he would, he would love that one. Um, and it would host a peace situation room. So this is something, um, you know, the Pentagon has a war room where you go and plan wars. We would have a peace room where we plan aid, development, um, bring all the NGOs in to help countries that are on the brink of conflict but could be brought back from it if we if the nonagon intervened, right? Um, it would help with gender peace building and domestic violence um, reduction because, you know, men and women have to learn to make peace. It's There are huge issues around that culturally. I still believe men and women love each other deep down and don't want to do violence. Um, and, and that would be part of the outreach of the nonagon. Um, 
knowing that that's possible. <clears throat> it would do interfaith peace building, which is something obviously I specialized in. I believe all religions have a peace message. There's, um, you know, there's there's tremendous support we could get from the faiths for for the work of the nonagon, I believe. It could also do media peace advocacy. So films, radio, documentaries, TV, internet, newspapers, I think should be doing much more to promote peace and to damp down on hate speech. The media has been very naughty in promoting violence. Um, and so the nonagon would, would counter that in a sense. Um, Arms reduction in, um, you know, ending these violent shootings that are going on would be part of the Nonagon's remit. Um, you know, it's not just big weapons, missiles, it's handguns, it's it's the kind of weapons that shooters use. They need to be brought under control, and the Nonagon would have that uh, responsibility. <clears throat> the cyber peace building program is important because a lot of warfare now is on in the internet, it's in the noosphere. And so uh, methodologies need to be developed to filter out the hate speech that's floating around the internet. I reckon that the Nonagon should administer truth oaths for all elected politicians, whether at Congress level or in, um, you know, nationally or in the states, that all politicians should tell the truth by law. And if they don't, they lose office immediately. We can't clear up politics without that, a truth oath. I proposed this in the UK Parliament, um, and I wrote a bill, draft bill, about that. <clears throat> and the Nonagod should administer that, I think, in the States. Um, it, would, it would have a peace arts programme, supporting artists who are active in making peace, just as under Roosevelt they supported the arts. So I think it's time to get the artists busy again, doing murals and, and just... Okay, I mean, it, it, there's, there's people realise that if you use colour in places like schools, it, it lessens the violence. Kids actually love colour. And so if we paint the schools bright colours, rainbow colours, the violence and bullying just drops down. It's statistically shown. And where there's art, there's much less uh, violence in a given neighbourhood. So, you know, it's got serious... The arts are not just for fun they're they're for saving lives um and i'm a i'm the chair of a thing called the peace gardens network um so so sort of a, a network of peace gardens would be part of that because landscape art is is also part of this work i think developing peace policies for the us that would enhance its prestige in the world like in gaza and israel if if the nonagon's job would be to stop that war immediately let's stop this war um, and and fund both sides equally. I mean, at the moment, America, for all kinds of complex cultural reason, is is vastly funding Israel and and minimally funding Palestine. If if America suddenly remembered, actually, hang on, guys, we're supposed to be for peace here. We've got a nonagon here. Well, that would change, and I reckon within a few years we could get the Israelis and Palestinians like talking civilly to each other. Um, there was never a conflict between Islam and Judaism. For centuries, they were best friends. We can go back to that. Um, <clears throat> I, I want America to sign a bilateral peace treaty with every single nation on earth. That'd be part of the Nonagon's job. You know, that, that country X will never attack America and America will never attack country Y. You know, it, it could be done. 
Um, and of course, if, if a country says, no, we don't want to sign that, well, then you say, okay, go talk to the guys downstairs in the Pentagon. They'll, they'll probably put you right, you know. <laughs> um, and it would support the work of the UN, the Nonagon, because the UN is, is the best peacekeeping thing we've got at the moment globally. And it's developed lots of programs on a shoestring. It has no funding, hardly. Um, so the, the, the Nonagon would be having a lot of contact with the UN and supporting it. It's just down the road in New York, after all. It would support the work of non-violence activists around the world because the, the quintessence of peace work is to move in the direction of non-violence work. I've just attended a conference for non-violence um, organized by the Jains in India. And, um, you know, non-violence ahimsa, that was Gandhi's point. What is that? What is ahimsa? How can we develop that in, in children, in our youth, and show that it's cool to be for non-violence, much more so than to be for violence. It would support higher education work on peace building. Obviously, as an academic, I, would, I think it's important. Universities have a vital role. The Nonagon would have grants to give for peace research, for non-violence research, peacemaking projects, and get academics actually off their, you know, their military um, cushions they've been sitting on for years they're all inventing new weapons and, and uh, you know war games well no come on guys time to do some peace thinking here and it would also work as a reference point for um for liaising with other peace um departments in other countries uh, obviously i'm not proposing that only america do this i want a similar thing in britain and france and germany and all the rest and uh, morocco and you know wherever but um let's start it let's get it going in the u.s and you could do it with such panache and such such fun as a nonagon i think um <clears throat> and you would also be the nonagon would be dispersing grants for peace workers and peacemaking projects throughout the usa because often peace is the ugly duckling like you guys volunteers working away but nothing um you know, nothing you hardly ever gets funded. Well, this would be the job of the Nonagon. It would have a huge grant award scheme for neighborhood peacemakers uh, working with whatever, you know, parenting skills, bullying in schools, um, gun control, the whole works. Okay, and then finally, it would also be looking at peace and sustainability, the links between ecology and peace, because um, there is a huge link here, and um, the more we screw up the world, the, you know, the military is the worst um, producer of of greenhouse gases in the world and in aggregate. If we solve militarism and we get peace on the planet, we can save the environment. We can't do it without doing that. So, so that's why there's an absolute linkage. So, the Nonagon would also outreach to all the kind of peace and sustainability and ecological groups around states and help them save their forests and you know watch uh, the effects of global warming um because there's a direct linkage with with peace work um and finally obviously racism is is a perpetual problem and so attitudinal change around race and understanding um yeah the need for universalism and inclusivism and, and non-discrimination and so on as as a core value in america's civilization and the world's 
um, and many cultures can offer help with that. For instance, Islam has a no tolerance of racism project, um, you know, at its core. Okay, so that's kind of my sketch of what it would do, this, this non-gun or this department of peace building. My conclusions now, coming to the end. Um, how do we get there, the advocacy? This is a very short. Firstly, we work out the costs of war, which are trillions, you know. We, we get the figures out. We get economists to total the amount the USA has been spending on militarism, say just in the last 50 or 70 years since World War II. We work out who's lobbying for that to continue. We find out how much money is being given by lobby, militaristic lobbying groups to Congress. Get the figures. They're the opposition to peace. They don't want the non-agent to come into being. We propose a dual track ideal for diplomacy for the USA and all the NATO countries. At the moment, NATO has to, NATO members have to put a certain percentage of their GDP towards the military. We change that and say, from now on, there are two tracks. NATO stands for not just military, but peace building. And so a Canada-like country has to give a percentage of its GDP for the military track for NATO, but also a percentage for peace building. Um, and this, this then changes the way NATO is seen, because at the moment it doesn't have a very good PR. Um, that's kind of how the Russians are able to do what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> and, and finally, to represent the idea that militarism doesn't represent actual strength, and peace doesn't represent weakness. This is a a misperception that the media promote. You know, the macho people get guns and shoot people. Silly people, uh, you know, weaklings go to peace meetings. No, we have to reverse that. It was Gandhi who said only a truly courageous person can be a satyagraha. Um, and I think the other part of the advocacy that's needed is, is you know, people are emotional creatures as well as, you know, they're not always fully rational. So we have to appeal to their emotions and their their visual sense. That's why the nonagon, it would make a great visual image, um, you know, a glass building on top of the Pentagon. I mean, it would be an amazing thing that would get, capture the imagination and the hearts of people to get them involved in this project. And then finally, I think what, you know, what we could do is liaise with peace groups throughout the states um, and indeed even worldwide and build networks and influence of key personnel to, to get behind this idea, to support you in the work you're doing um, and, and to support the idea of it being, you know, stuck on the Pentagon. I think people would love this idea globally. Everyone I've discussed it with in, in Europe here loves it. Um, so anyway, there's my little, that's my conclusion. I hope I've kept to my 48 minutes slot. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening. Um, yes. Any questions? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Yeah, you're very much in alignment with uh, a lot that's uh, specifically mentioned in the bill. Uh, and the intent in addressing everything that needs to be addressed that's in the way of peace. So beautiful, very comprehensive thoughts. Samina, did you want to say something? Oh, thank you. No, I I, I was just um, saying, I'm saying, just kind of echoing your sentiment as well. 
Um, thank you, Dr. Daphne. It truly was a um, fascinating conversation to, to, to listen to you. I always walk away from every talk you've had uh, learning so much. So thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. But one thing I wanted to say is <laughs> it appears that there's a popular question on a lot of participants' minds um, about the beautiful hat you wear. Uh, in in the story of the muffler and the hat, so I thought I'd bring it up. Somebody put it on the chat. Oh, right. Gosh, <laughs> um, okay. So I wear a hat because it's cold in France, even now. In the midsummer, I dispense with a hat, but it, I I use it. This one comes from Turkey. It's a it's a Sufi hat I bought in Turkey, and I rather love it because it's got gold and it's nice colours. Um, so that's that's the history. I was there with my daughter visiting Turkey, visiting sacred sites like Ephesus and all that. Um, I've studied Sufism. I've done a commentary on the Quran um, for those that are interested in comparative religion. And also I've done one on the Gospels, and I've tried to prove that they're similar um, deep down. You know, these these to me, these are aquifers. If you go down to the water table it pumps up the same water and so it really grieves me that this this war and i've also done one on the ketubim for the jewish community trying to show that these are all the same truths so i suppose that's what the hat symbolizes the the unity of of the spiritual wisdom of humanity that's what we need to pump up so that we can put out all these fires um yeah i love it okay i think it's beautiful so Bless Dr. Gaffern, this is Elva, and I Hi. was wondering if there are any visual representations. I love the idea of a nonagon, but have has anybody done any drawings or? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I had an architect for my Peace Studies Institute. He was going to do the drawings. He came to me with me to the Leonardo da Vinci site. We were together when the whole thing download came. Um, and then he was coming back here a couple of summers ago. He was going to do an architectural drawing of it. And then the poor chap went and died. It's really sad. Oh. Um, yes. So, so he didn't arrive to do the drawing. I'm looking for a qualified architect that could do the drawings. Um, but no, it's not been done yet. So if you know of any architects that have those skills, I mean, nowadays you can do it all on computer-generated images and stuff. I don't think it's that difficult. Um, do put them in my direction. I'd love to see it done visually. Yeah. I so do have some problem. connections at the University of Texas at Arlington here in my city uh, in the architectural department. So that oh, would well, be, a, yeah. you know, a, a great program. The okay, yeah. It would be great for a student or something to do it um, you know, as part of their training. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll put my email into chat. And okay. if you want to keep in touch, or any of you, if you liked what I was talking about, want to keep in touch, please get in, you know, just email me and we can take it from there. Um, it's very simple. It's thomasdaffin at gmail.com. Could you comment a little bit more on the truth oath idea? I mean, obviously, truth is suffering a lot in our country and probably all over the world. But how mm. how would you enforce that? How would that <laughs> how would that work out? Yes, I mean, I can speak to it from the UK Parliament perspective. 
There's a sort of unwritten truth oath in the UK Parliament. Members are required to sign up to a sort of code of behaviour, and telling the truth is part of that. And that's how Boris Johnson was finally forced out of office. He was such a liar. Um, he billed himself as the Trump of the UK, and he was in his in his huge lies. Um, but it's kind of it's it's just a code of ethics that they expect you to follow, and then if you don't, you can be censured and eventually um, thrown out. What I'm saying is let's see, let's make it more, um, you know, upfront and focus on the truth thing. Um, and so I called it the parliamentary duty of veracity bill, which is that parliamentarians have a duty to tell the truth and not to lie. Um, and and my bill could be reworded and adopted for the Congress or the government of India's parliament or anywhere, or the Knesset. Um, I think it's the minimum requirement in a democracy is that your representatives tell the truth. Otherwise, how can you, how can you, how can you even have a conversation with them? Um, and I I think it's terrible what what um, American politics has. You know, in the Trump era, it's all about telling such vast lies that you you kind of capture the public imagination uh, with, oh God, maybe you know, maybe he really is like Navalny. Maybe he's the victim. You know, it's like it's it's just brainwashing, isn't it? So a truth oath is absolutely essential to to civilized politics, in my view. I mean, it shouldn't be necessary. People should automatically know that i was brought up to tell the truth it was just part of one's educational background but there's a whole bunch of people around in power that don't seem to realize that so anyway i can send you the um the email if you email me i'll send you the link to the bill the parliamentary duty of veracity bill yes please please do that okay. kathy has her hand up i see <clears throat> Uh, I hope I had it right at the front door. I hope I didn't. This didn't get asked already, but I think your idea of building on top of the Pentagon is just so beautiful. And I'm wondering how did that come to you? Well, as I say, it came on that day when I did this conference in honor of Da Vinci and went to his graveside, and we had this like strange. I mean. I suppose a Jungian would say it was my my unconscious mind was was uh, exploring, you know, thoughts. And I was very inspired by going to the um, the museum in Amboise where he lived. It's now a a, a place called Cloluche, and in the basement they have all these models of everything he invented and designed, including all these weapons. Um, they're wooden models; they don't actually fire stuff. Um, and I just, I was thinking about all this, driving home, and then went to see the sunset. And the idea just, you know, these thoughts just just came into my mind that um, if he were alive now, he would want a nonagon. <laughs> um, so the image came to your mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. It's beautiful. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I, um, well, I hope I hope we can build it together. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> God, yes. Any any final questions from anyone? Um, I have one question. Um, yeah. it, other than the, the vision coming to you, which is enough on its own, but is there any other kind of similar 
uh, symbolic reasoning for the nanogram or just because that's what came to you in that? Well, okay, so I work a lot with, with the number nine. It's a sacred number. Um, my center is dedicated to the nine muses who were the goddesses of wisdom in ancient Athens that Plato dedicated the academy to. Um, I've been to Athens and I've, I've been to the World Congress of Philosophy because I run Philosophers for Peace, right? And I'm an academic, so that means I'm a devotee of the academy. And when I went to the original grounds of the academy, it was like Mecca for me. And archaeologists discovered that Plato built a temple to the Nine Muses in the grounds of the academy because he expected his scholars to take time out every day and go and sit in the temple. Um, and just reflect, you know, because knowledge is a sacred thing. Academics are devoted to knowledge, wisdom, um, unraveling the thoughts of God or the goddess. I mean, they worshipped Athena, the goddess of wisdom, but the nine muses as well. So I just love the nine, the number nine. It's, it's the nine months of pregnancy. It's, and it's humility because we, we, we don't, we'll never know enough to do all ten. We'll only ever get nine, you know. <laughs> um, and I discovered it's sacred in many faiths. I mean, nine, um, there are 99 names of God, for instance, in Sufism and Islam. Um, in Baha'i religion, it's an important number. Um, in the Kabbalah, there's 10 Sephiroth, but the 10th is unknowable, so there's effectively nine, etc., etc. And we have 10 fingers, you know. So, yeah, it has a lot of symbolism. But um, I just think it, it's a cool shape as well. And it would look a beautiful building. I mean, it'd be amazing um, to usher in a, a world of peace, which is what I would like America to help give birth to. I think that's what, that's what your founding fathers and mothers wanted your country to do. Um, yes. And so this would be for, you know, taking that pledge on further. Yeah. Mm. Just what came to mind as you were speaking is I think in numerology, nine is a completion number. And the idea of a peace department or an office of peace has been around since the beginning of our country. So it would be a completion of the intent. There we uh, go. You see, there must be some magic at work here. <laughs> yes. Kendra, I think you had your hand up a minute ago. What was your point? I was interested to hear about your experiences with the truth and reconciliation in the Middle East. Well, so I visited several times. I interviewed people in Israel, cultural figures, intellectuals, rabbis. I went to Palestine and did the same and interviewed um, leading intellectuals, artists, poets, um, Peace, peace activists, there's a peace centre in Bethlehem, for instance, which I went to. I recorded all these interviews. I interviewed people from a whole walks of life in both communities. Um, and there was a documentary film made about it. I then went to Turkey and did the same. Um, and, you know, it, that's kind of what inspired me to do these commentaries on, on the three faith traditions. Um, Quran and the um, Gospels, and including the Gnostic Gospels, by the way, the Gospel of Thomas and Mary Magdalene as well, and the um, 
Jewish Ketuvim, the scriptures of wisdom. I just know that there's um, there need not be these wars happening. These people belong as friends and brothers and sisters. I mean, if Jesus were here among us, what is he Jewish? Is he Muslim? Is he Christian? He's all three, you know, and all three um, traditions have a place for his work and teachings. Um, and I think, okay, I think we should all be multi-faith people. Um, you know, and, and the minute we get rid of this mono, I'm only a one thing concept, and we accept our multifaceted nature, we enter the diamond path. Buddhists talk about the diamond path to enlightenment. What that means is we reflect the multifaceted aspect of reality. And um, Jains talk about this as well. So truth cannot be seen from only one angle. It's like one side of the diamond. There are many sides. So what I've tried to do with the TRC for the Middle East is emphasize that multifaceted nature of that culture. I love the Middle East. It's amazing. Being in Jerusalem, I love it. I love Bethlehem. I love um, all over, you know, Hebron. I went to Galilee. I went to Panyas, um, which is where Jesus had his who do they say I am conversations with his disciples. <laughs> um, and I and the other thing about the Middle East is it's got so many small unknown cultures like the Yazidis, the Armenians, the Sufis, the Druze. It's not just just the three faiths, and they also have many different um, textures. There's Shias, there's Sunnis, um, and I don't like the demonization of Iran that's been going on. The Iranian culture is incredibly sophisticated. And that all needs to be diffused. You know, Netanyahu's been having a personal war of revenge against Iran. That's ridiculous. They're, um, they're a highly ancient civilization, and the Zoroastrians are part of that mixture. So as a scholar of comparative philosophy and religion, I think these um, the Middle East is a beautiful peace haven, if only we could stop bombing it and start funding peace work there. That's what it's supposed to be about. I think. Hmm. Darylon um, has her hand up. Yeah. Hi. Darylon. You have to unmute. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, you mentioned Turkey, and I'm just curious as to know uh, uh, how you were received uh, in Turkey uh, and their ideas in terms of uh, being willing uh, to uh, talk about peace and develop uh, a peace regiment there. Because I I know that the hatred between them and the Armenians has been going on for four years. In fact, I was uh, told about a young man that committed suicide when he found out, I guess, as a result of, of, of rape that he was half Armenian and half Turkish. So I'm just kind of curious to mm. know what uh, what your findings were when you visited Turkey. Yes, well, I mean, I love I loved Turkey. My experience is there. Um, I've been several times. Uh, the most interesting was when I was invited by a Sufi group in Istanbul mm. to give a keynote lecture. And there are about 5,000 people in the audience. Um, an amazing um, woman has channeled something called the Knowledge Book, 
She's a great devotee of uh, the Turk. She's a patriot of Turkey through and through. Her disciples regard her as the reincarnation of Rumi. I discovered after I'd been there, you know, and I met her. She doesn't speak English. Um, and they took me to um, sacred centers, you know, throughout um, throughout the city. And then I traveled to other places, Ephesus and other sacred sites. I found I found Turkish intellectuals, the kinds I was meeting, were very even-handed and um, unbiased. And I think there's potential for great peace work in Turkey. I think a, a nonagon type thing the Turks would love, actually. Um, and that, yes, the tragedy with Armenia, that's, that's why there's need for healing here. Um, Turkey itself has many, many cultures and textures to it um, and traditions. I, but I believe at its heart, it, it, it understands the importance of peace. And um, that is, after all, the heart of Islam. And there's, in the Topkapi Palace, which I visited, they have the green cloak of Muhammad, for instance. Um, you know, I think, <clears throat> I think there's, so a Turkish nonagon would work on, like, healing the split with Armenians, and they need a kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission to bring all that out. They've buried it away. They're not allowed to talk about it. Um, I have close Armenian friends who who have still who still remember whose grandfathers were on the marches into the desert that the Turkish military forced on them. Um, it was an utter tragedy, the whole thing. But I think it was part of the overall militarization that, that World War One forced on the planet. World War One was an absolute disaster. If I had a time machine, I'd go back and stop it. I would prevent the bullet hitting the guy in Sarajevo. It slaughtered, it destroyed, you know, um, a lot of a lot of um, peace went down because of World War One, and it invented this idea of mass slaughter's fine. You know, we can't. Um, I haven't yet invented a time machine. You know, maybe in the Nonagon they would, <laughs> um, because that would be great. But. At least we can have truth and reconciliation type processes whereby Turks and Armenians apologize to each other. Um, I mean, what do Armenians have to apologize for? Well, the trouble is they were too clever and they the Turks were jealous of them. It's like why people were anti-Semitic. The Jewish people were too clever and for peasants in Europe, so they were jealous of them and hated them. It's It's a silly response to clever people. But I think anyway, no, Turkey is a good example of how why we need this kind of work. And um, and I think that America could show the way and then these other countries would all say, yeah, that's great. We we want um, we want one, too. Why not? Let's do it. Mm. Nancy's posted saying the Department of Peacebuilding calls for nine main entities. So that's that's cool bit of synchronicity going on there um so anyway well i hope you've enjoyed my talk i'm getting in touch with the email um and i better go to bed now it's 20 past three here <laughs> oh my goodness i gotta i better go and wind down and then because my daughter's <laughs> staying with me and she wants me to get up in the morning <laughs> oh. 
She's an artist. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. My last final thing I want to say. Um, my daughter went to India recently to represent me for the Delphic Games. So amongst all my other hats, I'm education coordinator for the Delphic Games. That's the sort of thing that the Nonagon could be involved with. The Delphic Games were the artists um, coming together like an Olympic Games. For a thousand years in Delphi, they had a Delphic Games. And it was for artists, painters, dancers, theatre people, poets. And the Greeks loved the arts. And they, we've, we're trying to bring them back to be as important as the Olympics. Hmm. And during the Delphic Games, you can't participate if your country's at war. Um, and so we would send, you know, theatre people performances um, to the Delphic Games every four years. And it would promote the arts around the world. So that's, I think, the arts are part of peace building. And my daughter's a singer and a musician, and I'm a poet as well. You know, these the arts are really important. And that's the sort of thing that the Nonagon could could um, could help and sponsor, and every country should have a Delphic Games team. We have a team a team in the USA, in, in America, we have in New York, uh, you know, some people involved in this. So if anyone's interested in the arts, get in touch. Yeah. Is it the same as the Delphi Pythian Games? Is Correct. that the same thing? Yeah, it's called the Pythian Games, but it's the Delphic Games as well. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yes. We have a we have a website which I'll send you the link to. Yeah. Yes, please do because I Great. definitely uh, Delphic. Um, I'll yeah. spell it. The Delphic Games. It's a, it's a city in the mountains of um, southern Greece where Apollo. Um, it was his sacred center. Apollo uh, is is the kind of Greek god of reason and healing and prophecy and music um, and the arts. So, if we were all making music together, we wouldn't have time to fight. <laughs> that's it, isn't it? Right. Precisely. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, look, bless you all. Thank you for having me. And, Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. We'll meet up again uh, in the, um, yeah, when we get the Nonagon built. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for all your attention. Yeah. And good Thank luck. You. Good luck. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. Ah, yeah. Wow. Take a deep I, breath. I can't wait to see the rendering in. of the Beast Department on top of the Pentagon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's wow. good. It gives us a great visual for manifestation, right, Lori? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Funny you should say that, Amina, because <laughs> you, you really do have synchronicity up there in your in your uh, energy field. Um, I was thinking that we would play the uh, manifestation meditation after we stopped the recording for anyone who wanted to stay. It's about um, seven minutes long. I've got it queued up. Um, uh, there's a link to it on our Department of Peacebuilding page, so you could listen to it every day, several times a day, once a month, whatever you so choose, <laughs> to manifest a Department of Peace. Um, use it as your regular meditation or not. But I, there's an introduction and and how it came into being and uh, at the beginning, so I've queued up about three minutes in so that we're just into the meditation. 
Um, how about it? I'm, I'm sure we're all kind of bubbling up with something or other after mm -hmm. that amazing talk. If people want to do a, a word or two, um, really, because I just want to honor everybody's time. It's 21 minutes after the hour. We usually don't go late on this, but this was really quite phenomenal. And, it, and uh, it's worth just kind of being with each other for a moment. And uh, I'll just let us go popcorn if people just want to share um, a couple of words before we close off the call. Yeah, I, I'm going to need to leave. I just, I just love that we came up with the word harmony. And <laughs> this, this has been, uh, he is amazing. Mm -hmm. And boy, he just touched on everything that we're working for and with uh, wonderful, wonderful ideas. And uh, just uh, thank you so much uh, for bringing this and, uh, and recording it. Yes. Yeah, Amina, thank you for your um, initiative. You're always initiative, but this is wonderful. Oh, yeah, and for everybody, a team team. yeah, everybody else on the call, the uh, the Department of Peacebuilding Committee met for a six-hour workshop uh, the other weekend, and we chose harmony as our theme for 2024. So there we go. Uh, yeah. I'm and Karen, off. will the recording be available to us on your yes. site, or where yes. do we go to see that? If I wanted to share it with people. Yeah, it's um, uh, we have a new page now that we're including all of the calls and recordings once they're done. Uh, but also there's the Peace on podcast on the Peace Alliance site. You can find a button up toward the top and then they're there in uh, chronological order, most recent last. So it usually takes 12 to 24 hours for our, our staffer to get that up. And I would find it on your podcast, Peace On. Peace On podcast button on the peacealliance.org site. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say good night. And Amina, thank you so much. Brilliant yeah. people like him just totally <laughs> inspire me and amaze me. And yeah, I'm just, I'll leave shaking my head and I'll be shaking my head for quite a while. So <laughs> thank, thank you, everybody. It's good to okay, see you. Good all right. I have to say, um, Nancy, that when you put down the nine aspect, I didn't think about that when you said the nine departments or parts of the, the, the bill. It just, I don't know, it made me choked up a little bit how, as we were talking, speaking on that subject, how that, that just came together so beautifully. Yeah. You say if, because I want to, I really want to close this call off so it doesn't go too long on the recording. If anybody wants to say a couple of closing words and then we can talk as long as we like afterwards. Anyone else? Okay, let's just close off the uh, call on the recording. Thank you everybody for being here. I, I think I'll probably um, listen to this a couple of times myself. It's just so rich and I've got a lot of notes and amazing, amazing.